Hi everybody, Prof. CJ here. Welcome back to the Dangerous History Podcast after a bit of a hiatus. Reigniting the one-man revolution, spreading the dangerous history. This is going to be episode number 53. As you may have seen by the announcements I put out online, I was out of action for over a week. Severely sick. Severely sick. And now I'm finally clawing my way back to a point where I can sort of maybe do a podcast. I'm still a little bit hoarse. You might hear it in my voice. And still have a bit of a residual cough that kicks in from time to time, but man, I'm way better than I was. I was severely clusterfucked there for over a week. Now, you might have noticed on the intro that I've got new music. It's my intro and outro music. I've got actual decent professional sounding music finally. And uh, that is thanks to viewers like you who have been kind enough to donate a few bucks my way. Um, one of the things I've been able to do is to get some better serious professional intro and outro music. So, um, got rid of my, you know, homemade cobbled together with like no resources and no idea of what the hell I was doing intro and outro from before. Now I've got something that actually sounds kind of professional. So thank you very much to all of you listeners who have donated in some form or another. And I hope that those of you who have not donated will consider doing so. Help me out, help me build the show, improve the show and keep it going and so on. So in this episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, I'm going to be doing another Dangerous History Podcast villain segment. And when I do DHP villains, I, so far anyway, I've only done a couple of these, but um, I try to make it not so obvious, not so well-known people. To me, it would be easy and kind of lazy to just do Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, you know, those guys, I mean, they're horrific villains, some of the worst in human history, but... I don't know, to me, it's it's sort of lazy to, to just trot those guys out. Um, you know, maybe I'll do episodes on them someday. I probably will. But for now, at least, when I talk about villains, I want to try to make it villains you've likely not heard of before. And today is one of those. It's a man with the very plain vanilla name of William Stevenson. Very blah name. And most of you, I'd bet, have probably never heard of him. William Stevenson was a Canadian who lived from 1897 until he died at a ripe old age in 1989. He became the highest-ranking British intelligence official in the Western Hemisphere during World War II, and as such, he helped, in many ways illegally and unconstitutionally, get the United States into World War II, violating U.S. law along the way with the active assistance of the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration, the FBI at the time, and so on. Now, my main source for this story, not my only source, but my main source, is a book published, I think, in the 70s originally, entitled A Man Called Intrepid by an author also named William Stevenson. Now, the William Stevenson that I'm talking about here, the, the British intelligence official, was Stevenson spelled with a P-H. The author of the book about William Stevenson, called A Man Called Intrepid, supposedly his code name, is authored by a guy who's named William Stevenson with a V and is no relation to William Stevenson. So, just to make things a little confusing. Now, some aspects of the version of Stevenson's story told in the book A Man Called Intrepid have been contested by people, but um, as far as I've been able to tell, the aspects of the story that have been contested have been things that do not challenge the essence of the story. You know, they've been things like uh, challenging the fact that Stevenson's code name might not have actually been intrepid, as if that's like a really important 
you know, part of the story. Or um, there have been challenges by some people saying that um, William Stevenson was not as personally close to Winston Churchill as the book A Man Called Intrepid claims. And again, like that to me is not that important to the basic story, because to me, the essence of the story, what really matters is the so what to history is this. A British spy was with the full knowledge and consent and assistance in some cases of the Roosevelt administration operating in the United States in the early part of World War II, when the U.S. was still officially neutral with laws on the books to that effect and was operating in ways that violated both U.S. law and the U.S. Constitution. And not only did the FDR administration not stop Stevenson's operations, they actively assisted him on multiple occasions because, of course, they shared the same goal, which was to manipulate the United States against the wishes at the time of the American people and much of Congress into intervening in World War II to help out the British yet again. So William Stevenson was born in Winnipeg, Canada in 1897. And as a young man, he served in World War I as a fighter pilot, where he shot down, depending on what source you consult, somewhere between one or two dozen German planes. But he was eventually shot down himself. He was captured by the Germans, was briefly a POW, but then managed to escape. During World War I, an American named William Donovan, who would later get known to history as Wild Bill, uh, who, by the way, also would be the future founder of the OSS, um, did a study of the war for the Rockefeller-sponsored American War Relief Commission. And in this capacity, Donovan traveled to Europe in the early days of World War I, uh, before the United States was officially in the war, where he first met Stevenson, and they quickly became friends and corresponded thereafter. Um, Later, during World War II, William Stevenson would be a major booster for Donovan um, within the you know, influencing the U.S. government, and he helped Donovan get the job as the head of the American OSS. So their association started all the way back in 1916 when the Rockefeller interests sent William Donovan to Europe. Now, after the war, William Stevenson became a very successful businessman and, in fact, became a millionaire before he reached the age of 30. One of his first business ventures was based on a can opener that he came across while he was a POW in German custody. He saw this can opener, it seemed like a really neat, innovative uh, design, and it turned out that that particular can opener had been patented only in Germany and nowhere else. So after the war, William Stevenson got global patents on this design and then manufactured it. And he later got involved in a whole bunch of other business ventures, many of which were more successful than the can opener. Um, He had a lot of success in making radios. He was also involved in the manufacture of automobiles and airplanes and random other activities such as real estate and construction. And during this time, still a young man in his 20s in these years after World War I, he also became a successful boxer. William Stevenson was also instrumental in persuading the British government to establish and finance the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, in the early 1920s. And according to the book, A Man Called Intrepid, quote, the BBC was later incorporated to function without interference by the ruling political party, end quote, which, of course, makes the BBC totally isolated, insulated and immune from any British elections, doesn't it? 
In the late 1930s, Stevenson was doing a lot of business on the European continent, including a lot of business with Germany. And in that capacity, he began acting as an informal intelligence agent, sending confidential information to then-member of Parliament Winston Churchill about goings-on in Germany. Now, when World War II beckoned on the horizon, Stevenson began making contact with influential people in the United States government, uh, including several that were close to FDR, such as the progressive businessman Bernard Baruch, who ran the War Industries Board during World War I and later was uh, part of the FDR administration. And on September 11th, 1939, FDR initiated a secret written correspondence with Winston Churchill, who was still not yet prime minister at the time. And this is uh, unheard of that you've got this secret contact being made between, on the one hand, the head of a state that is still ostensibly neutral, and on the other hand, a foreign leader who was not yet like the top person in the government. Churchill wasn't prime minister yet. But this began... You know, totally secret at the time, American people, American Congress, no idea that FDR secretly opening communications with Churchill and is already beginning to plot how to get the United States into the war on the side of the British against the Germans. This, by the way, in spite of the fact that at the time FDR was still publicly proclaiming his commitment to neutrality and his commitment to stay out of Europe's war, um, he even ran for re-election in 1940 on that basis. Very much shades of Woodrow Wilson with the First World War, where, you know, you just tell the public, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm the peace candidate. I'm going to keep you from having to die in foreign wars. Meanwhile, the whole time behind the scenes, you're already laying the groundwork and, and making the decisions to go to war eventually. In June of 1940, still very early in World War II, Winston Churchill sent William Stevenson into the United States to set up something that would be called the British Security Coordination Office, known as the BSC, in New York City. And as such, Stevenson, who, according to at least some sources, had been by this time codenamed Intrepid, became Britain's top intelligence officer in the United States, even though up to that point he had very little personal experience in intelligence. Basically, his time as like an informal, you know, information passer in the late 30s, giving some German, you know, information on the German government's doings to Winston Churchill was about all he had as personal firsthand intelligence operations experience. And Stevenson's cover while he was running this, uh, you know, British espionage network in the United States was that he was a passport control officer. BSC's headquarters was actually located on the 35th and 36th floors of Rockefeller Center in New York City. Um, Quote from the book, A Man Called Intrepid. Stevenson's mandate, when it was finally defined, ran to hundreds of pages covering activities that ranged from operations against Americans helping Britain's enemies to policing U.S. ports to supervising the overthrow of a pro-Nazi government. BSC... And I, and I think, by the way, that's that's in reference to um, uh, goings on in Latin America, that overthrowing a pro-Nazi government. Uh, continuing with the quote from a man called Intrepid, BSC conducted guerrilla warfare from secret headquarters in the privileged sanctuary of neutral U.S. soil, end quote. Stevenson's network intervened directly in the American media and in American politics in order to discredit 
so-called isolationists. And in fact, Stevenson's network was actually linked to several killings that took place on American soil during this time before America officially entered World War II. An article about William Stevenson on, of all places, the CIA's website, and I will put a link to this article in the show notes if you want to look at it for yourself. An article about William Stevenson on the CIA's own website says, quote, He used his contacts in American industry and government to improve U.S.-British relations and to push the U.S. towards war with the Axis powers. According to documents in the U.K. National Archives, British authorities tasked him to launch covert operations against the American isolationist movement. His effort was no doubt aided by his many contacts in the entertainment industry. End quote. By most accounts, William Stevenson became the main go-between, linking Franklin Roosevelt to Winston Churchill in the early phases of World War II, when again, the U.S. government was still officially proclaiming neutrality. William Stevenson's BSC directly influenced U.S. media, um, including newspaper columns by writers such as Walter Winchell and Drew Pearson, and also got involved in media in other countries in the hemisphere, trying to push American and Latin American media more toward pro-British and anti-Axis views, directly poking their nose and, and trying to steer the public discourse in the Western Hemisphere. By the way, William Stevenson's organization were among those who were pressuring FDR in the summer of 1940 to run for an unprecedented third term. However, FDR, of course, had to make sure to not appear to be running as a pro-British candidate, because if he did, he would have lost in 1940, because the American people did not want a pro-British candidate. And it was during this period, summer of 1940, when FDR was beginning to run for his third term, that he said in July of 1940 to William Stevenson, quote, I'm your biggest undercover agent, end quote. And the book A Man Called Intrepid says about this quip, quote, the president was scarcely joking, end quote. So there you go. President of the United States um, under the thumb of foreign agents. Now, of course, legally speaking, had they actually followed the American laws and constitution that were on the books at the time, the FBI should have tried to stop Stevenson's operations on U.S. soil. Stevenson should have been arrested or at least deported. However, they looked the other way and sometimes actively assisted Stevenson's operations. Quote from a man called Intrepid. The U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation, of Investigation had not been in alliance with the regular British Secret Intelligence Service since the outbreak of war in Europe. The links were cut when politicians in the State Department became aware of them. If the news of restored British FBI links should ever leak out, America's neutrality would look distinctly bent, and every isolationist in that country would join a campaign blaming Roosevelt. Foreign intelligence in those days was a sinister concept to most Americans, end quote. Now, BSC began operating something known as Camp X on the Canadian side of Lake Ontario, about 300 miles northwest of Manhattan, just across, you know, the lake from upstate New York. And according to a man called Intrepid, quote, here agents trained, guerrilla devices were tested, and Hollywood-style Dummy buildings were constructed, 
as mock-ups of Nazi buildings that would be on the receiving end of intelligence operations. And at Camp X, approximately 2,000 British, Canadian, and American covert operators were trained between 1941 and 1945, including students from the OSS, the FBI, the Canadian uh, Royal Mounted Police, and various branches of the U.S. military and U.S. military intelligence agencies. By the way, among the Americans who received training at Camp X were five future CIA directors. Now, not only was uh, Stevenson training secret agents just across Lake Ontario, um, including some Americans getting training there, he also was getting involved directly in uh, labor and business and, and political goings on in various ways. For example, there were labor unions that were anti-British and sympathetic to the Axis powers. Um, the book A Man Called Intrepid says, quote, A curious alliance between business, labor, and pro-Nazi groups was uncovered. John L. Lewis, president of both the United Mine Workers of America and the Congress of Industrial Organizations, was involved with the oilies, the big oil companies trading with the Axis powers, end quote. And John L. Lewis also personally hated FDR. Well, Stevenson uh, went after John Lewis and also his friend and associate, the oil man William Rhodes Davis, who ironically worked in the same building as Stevenson's BSC. Um, according to a man called Intrepid, William Rhodes Davis's office was, quote, sandwiched between Stevenson's economic intelligence division and his coding machines, end quote. So William Rhodes Davis was an oil man who was an isolationist and was anti-FDR and was allied with John Lewis's uh, union interests. Davis was against the war. He had business ties with Germany, which, by the way, so did the Rockefellers, but the Rockefellers were quite pragmatic about turning on the Germans as soon as it was clear which way the wind was blowing. But um, William Rhodes Davis, I guess, was, was more committed to America staying out of the war. So here you've got this this uh, very wealthy oil man who's against helping out the British, who coincidentally has an office in the same building as Stevenson's BSC. Well, what what ended up happening? According to a man called Intrepid, quote, In the prime of life, at the age of 52, William Rhodes Davis died un unexpectedly. The cause of death was given as a sudden seizure of the heart, and further police inquiries were discouraged by the FBI at BSC's request. There were even reports of foul play, end quote. And later, uh, BSC papers reveal that there was a, an alleged scheme on the part of William Rhodes Davis to stealthily sell oil to German U-boats in the Caribbean. And the papers from BSC conclude, quote, the swiftest way to put a stop to this scheme was to remove Davis from the scene. End quote. So here's a, an American citizen, an American businessman. All the evidence seems to indicate assassinated by Stevenson's outfit on American soil at a time when the United States was neutral. And the FBI happily helped to cover up any suspicious uh, thoughts about this guy's death. Now, after taking out William Rhodes Davis, the BSC continued to poke its nose into the labor outfit, the CIO, in order to try and steer it 
towards a more pro-British point of view. And BSC set up something called the Fight for Freedom Committee in the uh, CIO, and they hid the fact that it was basically British government agents setting this up. These agents who were setting up this Fight for Freedom Committee went to the CIO convention in November of 1940, and BSC papers on this committee later reveal, quote, Fight for Freedom conducted a public opinion poll of the delegates. Great care was taken beforehand to make certain the poll results would turn out as desired. The questions were to steer the delegates' opinion towards support of Britain and the war. 96% thought defeating Hitler was more important than keeping the USA out of the war. 95% said they would advocate keeping the Japanese out of British possessions in Asia. 90% said they would fight at once if it seemed certain Hitler would defeat Britain. The campaign was particularly appreciated by some representatives of the Roosevelt administration who attended the convention as observers, end quote. So British secret agents are penetrating and influencing um, an American labor organization. Again, all while the United States is still nominally neutral. Now, in the summer of 1941, as uh, FDR, you know, is getting closer to finally getting the country into the war, he acceded to William Stevenson's wishes by finally creating um, a major intelligence office, something that would just be called the Coordinator of Information, which later is going to get enlarged and turn into the OSS. And uh, upon creating this office, FDR, also acceding to Stevenson's wishes, appointed Wild Bill Donovan to head it. William Stevenson with a V in A Man Called Intrepid writes, quote, To keep the White House in secure and continuous contact with Whitehall, a confidential agent of Roosevelt's own choosing would have to be taken into the secret heart of Britain and given the freedom to measure morale and scrutinize the new and aggressive leadership. Many Americans would object to a presidential spy who might short-circuit diplomatic and political channels. Many in Britain would object to disclosing to a neutral the secrets that were their only defense, end quote. And of course, that man was Bill Donovan. William Stevenson with a V continues, quote, On the face of it, Donovan would seem poorly qualified to work with Britain in any sensitive capacity. He was a Catholic of Irish descent and a Republican who might seem also to represent all that was anathema to a Democratic administration. But Roosevelt trusted him and had already sent him on, a personal, on personal intelligence missions abroad. He was, in Stevenson's opinion, just the man to be taken into Britain's confidence, end quote. By the way, William Stevenson's intelligence network was also crucial in helping coordinate the United States' assistance with the sinking of the German battleship, the Bismarck. A man called Intrepid says, quote, The president kept secret a flagrant breach of the Neutrality Act that led to the most celebrated victory in modern British naval annals, end quote. Americans helped in finding and sinking of the ship, and William Stevenson with a V writes, quote, Technically speaking, they had broken the law aided and abetted by their president, end quote. Another target of Stevenson and FDR was Democratic Senator Burton K. Wheeler, who was an ardent New Dealer who had long supported FDR, but who broke with him over the issue of the war. When FDR appeared to be gunning for war, uh, Burton Wheeler turned against him and joined the America First Committee. William Stevenson with a V writes, quote, 
Wheeler, regarded with favor by the Nazi leaders, was an America firster and proclaimed his belief that aid to Britain meant plowing under every fourth American boy in foreign battlefields for the benefit of a decayed British empire, end quote. Stevenson pulled strings in order to get Senator Wheeler under investigation for allegedly abusing the congressional franking privilege. And then he rigged another trap, so to speak, to try and get uh, Senator Wheeler in even more trouble. And FDR helped out on this one. In October of 1941, FDR made a speech about a supposed captured German map showing plans to take over South America. William Stevenson with a V writes, quote, Wheeler discovered that the map had been passed by Stevenson to Roosevelt. Previously, the senator had somehow suspected the fabrication of documents to topple Britain's enemies. With this in mind, he told friends that the German map that FDR had was a forgery. In fact, the map had been taken from a German courier by British agents organizing groups in South America to form the nucleus of an anti-Nazi resistance wherever enemy influence predominated. End quote. Wheeler raised his suspicion about the uh, veracity of this captured map in the U.S. Senate 12 days after FDR's speech. Wheeler got his hands on and publicized a War Department report entitled Victory Program, which contained an argument for the Germany first strategy of going after Germany first, uh, you know, priority before Japan. Senator Wheeler then passed this um, document along to the anti-war Chicago Tribune, which wrote about it, quote, a confidential report prepared by the Joint Army and Navy High Command by direction of President Roosevelt is a blueprint for total war, end quote. The information soon reached the Germans, but the fact of the matter was Victory Program was a plant. BSC had fabricated it and gotten it into Senator Wheeler's hands. According to the book A Man Called Intrepid, it was this Victory Program document that actually caused Adolf Hitler to preemptively declare war on the United States right after Pearl Harbor, which, by the way, ironically solved FDR's dilemma, um, because after Pearl Harbor... Of course, the Japanese had attacked the United States, so there's clear, you know, case for war there, but Germany had not directly attacked the United States. And um, FDR was kind of in a dilemma because he really wanted to fight Germany even more than he wanted to fight Japan. And Hitler unwittingly did FDR a favor by preemptively declaring war on the United States a few days after Pearl Harbor. William Stevenson himself, the Stevenson with a PH, uh, codename Intrepid, said this, quote, Hitler helped us achieve what Congress might have prevented or delayed. Under the U.S. Constitution, only Congress could declare war. And Roosevelt, with all his enormous personal influence and prestige as president, had failed to move the large isolationist bloc in Congress, end quote. So ironically, this uh, operation to try and make Senator Wheeler look like an idiot also had the side effect of causing Germany to feel more threatened by the United States and may have been a factor in causing Hitler to declare war on America a few days after Pearl Harbor. Now, looking back at these and many other uh, William Stevenson operations in America during World War II, the CIA's own website says, quote, In spite of his covert activities in the U.S. prior to Pearl Harbor, he was well regarded by his American counterparts. He was a strong supporter of the COI and its successor organization, the Office of Strategic Services, end quote. Now, there were intelligent Americans at the time who, while they may not have been privy to all of the secret goings-on, nonetheless 
were able to figure out that FDR was, you know, lying and stealthily manipulating the country into war, um, breaking the law and the Constitution in order to do so. And one of those was the historian Charles A. Beard, who wrote a book entitled President Roosevelt and the Coming of the War, 1941, in which he said, quote, If these precedents are to stand unimpeached and to provide sanctions for the continued conduct of American affairs, the Constitution may be nullified by the president, end quote. And that's an important thing, because these days, with all the secret documents that have come out, plenty of mainstream historians who love FDR openly admit that he violated the laws and the Constitution and so on and so on, and that he lied and manipulated uh, the country into war in World War II. And of course, they, they play it off as, and it was a good thing, because it was the right thing to do, and it was the best thing for the country to, you know, the American people were too stupid to understand that they should want to get into World War II. They were stupidly trying to cling to the idea of staying neutral and staying out of it. And luckily, wise FDR was willing to break all the rules and the laws and so on, and, uh, and play the country into war. Which, of course, then sets this precedent, right? I mean, FDR is one of these guys who's always trotted out as a so-called great president. But if this so-called great president is a guy who admittedly broke a ton of laws and constitutional provisions to manipulate the country into war, what precedent does that set for future presidents? Not a positive one, as far as I can see. A uh, speechwriter for FDR who was very much uh, pro-intervention named Robert Sherwood, um, who corresponded a little bit with William Stevenson, wrote to William Stevenson in the winter of 1940, quote, if the isolationists had known the full extent of the secret alliance between the United States and Britain, their demands for the president's impeachment would have rumbled like thunder through the land, end quote. And, um... In the summer of 1941, Robert Sherwood wrote again to William Stevenson and said the following, quote, FDR never for a moment overlooked the fact that his actions might lead to his immediate or eventual impeachment. He knew by heart that he was sworn to defend as well as uphold the Constitution. He had the right to judge how to defend. Still, he had this independent responsibility which devolves upon the chief executive to defend the nation in the way he thinks is best. Each time he regularized one of his actions, though, events forced him into yet another action that might result in impeachment, end quote. So there you get from Robert Sherman this, this you know, greater good idea that, yeah, FDR violated all kinds of laws and things like that and lied and manipulated and so on, but it was for the right cause, so it was all good. Now, once the United States was officially in the war and the OSS got set up, um, William Stevenson was involved in helping to set it up, helping organize it and so on, um, again, with William Donovan being the, the head guy there. Um, interestingly, right as World War I was, was uh, winding down, shortly after FDR's death, when Harry Truman became president, Harry Truman ordered BSC to get out of the country. Which is kind of interesting. Nobody involved with uh, BSC was ever prosecuted by the American government, but, but President Truman just kind of, you know, last couple months of the war said, all right, guys, get out of here. Which, which shows you that like there was, there was a full understanding on the part of of uh, even the new President Truman, that what BSC had been up to on U.S. soil had been illegal, and that if the people at the time, the American people at the time, knew about all this stuff, they would have been livid, livid at foreigners taking over and manipulating their government. However, even though Truman ordered BSC out of the country, he still was favorably disposed to them. And in fact, in 1946, President Harry Truman awarded William Stevenson the Medal of Merit, which was the highest civilian award 
uh, the U.S. government could bestow at that time for his quote-unquote service during World War II. And Wild Bill Donovan personally uh, was the one who presented Stevenson with the medal. And Stevenson was the first foreigner to receive that particular award. Same year, 1946, Stevenson was knighted by the British government as well. So from then on, he is Sir William Stevenson. Now, Stevenson uh, knew during the war years and worked with a British naval intelligence official named Ian Fleming. And some people believe Stevenson may have been part of the inspiration for the James Bond character, though uh, others think Stevenson may have actually not inspired James Bond, but have inspired the character of M, which is James Bond's enigmatic boss. In other words, because William Stevenson was more of like a spy master than he was really a spy himself. He was kind of a boss. But anyway, be that as it may, I'm sure it's sure there's there's a little bit of truth to both. William Stevenson spent much of his later life living in the Caribbean and in Jamaica and Bermuda, and he died in Bermuda in 1989 at the age of 93. Let me read you a quote from George Washington. And I'm no Washington idolater. I'm not one of these, you know, founding father cult people that thinks these guys are just like perfect, unquestioned, brilliant you know, divinely ordained uh, demigods or anything like that. I have major problems with George Washington. I could do a couple episodes on. That said, let's let's hear what, what George Washington had to say in his farewell address, giving some parting advice to the country. Just, just for shits and giggles, let's see what Washington said. Quote, Against the insidious wiles of foreign influence, the jealousy of a free people ought to be constantly awake, since history and experience prove that foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of Republican government. But that jealousy, to be useful, must be impartial, else it becomes the instrument of the very influence to be avoided, instead of a defense against it. Excessive partiality for one foreign nation and excessive dislike of another cause those whom they actuate to see danger only on one side and serve to veil and even second the arts of influence on the other. Real patriots who may resist the intrigues of the favorite are liable to become suspected and odious while its tools and dupes usurp the applause and confidence of the people to surrender their interests." So there you go. The people who at the time were arguing for neutrality and staying out of the war got eventually tarred and feathered as Nazi lovers and Nazi sympathizers. And the people who were violating the U.S. Constitution and U.S. law in order to, um, you know, give the British a free hand to do whatever and ultimately to come into the war on their side, they, they get the acclaim. Now, I'm no cheerleader of the U.S. government or the idea of governments and nationalism in general, for sure. That said, you you would think that people would be really, really on edge about foreign countries infiltrating and influencing their government if they are if if people are truly patriotic and nationalistic. You know, I'm thinking of like typical uh, mainstream conservatives who are all yeah, America. All right. You know, those types of people. If you're really that way, then how come? You play favorites, and when certain countries infiltrate and manipulate your government, it's okay. And thinking about the way the British government, you know, Winston Churchill via William Stevenson played America's leaders and helped manipulate with the active participation of President Roosevelt himself into war, um, to me calls to mind current events, especially in regard to Israel and their repeated interventions into American politics, and the way 
a huge amount of Americans who would probably uh, identify themselves as like the most uber patriotic right wing gung ho nationalist Americans in the country actively cheer the Israeli government manipulating the American government and playing it for its own benefit. The way that Israel operates with impunity and intervenes in, in the American system, in, in, in the American government, in the American media, um, in ways no other country could, is very analogous to what the British were doing back in the 1940s. Playing the American government and the American media for their own purposes, while many Americans who identify as patriots actively cheer for it. So anyway, that's the story of William Stevenson. Thanks for listening to episode 53 of the Dangerous History Podcast. Remember, there are um, multiple ways to follow the show. You can subscribe via email on the website, profcj.org. There's a place to put in your email and subscribe there, and you'll just get an update every time I post something on the website. You can also subscribe to the podcast itself. There's a lot of ways you can do this. You can find these on my website as well. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. And remember that there are multiple ways to help support the show. One is just to spread the word to anyone you think might be interested in listening. You can also help support the show by leaving reviews and ratings in venues such as iTunes to help encourage other people to give the show a shot. And of course, very important, very much appreciated by me, um, help support the show financially. You can donate money via PayPal, either one-time donation or set up a recurring, you know, few bucks a month, whatever. And uh, don't feel bad if you only have a few bucks to spare. I understand. I'm not rich myself, and I've, I greatly appreciate any amount of donation to help me out. You can also donate uh, Bitcoin. If you've got some Bitcoin burning a hole in your uh, digital wallet. I have a Bitcoin address on the donate page of my website, profcj.org slash donate underneath where uh, the PayPal button is. There's a Bitcoin address you can send me some Bitcoin if you like. Also, you can help out the show financially by purchasing things from Amazon.com by first going through the affiliate links on my website. And remember, it doesn't matter whether you buy the books that I actually have there or not. As long as you go through those links and then buy something from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut of the transaction. So it's a great way to help out the show if you're buying stuff from Amazon anyway, no extra cost to you. Anyway, I hope you'll consider supporting the show if you have not already. Thanks for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. I'll catch you next time.